0: Now, today's episode is one that I've been excited about for a while as we start to round out our series on the contributors to the Fire Time magazine, and I'm really excited for you to meet Jim Adams. So Jim is somebody who I came into contact with a couple years ago, we talk about it in the interview, but I met him when he was a sales rep for Associated Energy Systems here in the Pacific Northwest. And... What struck me about Jim from the beginning of meeting with him is this guy is like a pro's pro. I feel like everywhere that I came into contact with him, he was always well put together. He always was very articulate in what he was saying, and he seemed to be just very aware of how to present himself. And as a sales rep, that's what you want, right? A lot of sales reps are you know, frankly, very sloppy, where they roll in without an appointment, they don't have an agenda, that was not Jim. Now, he actually has a really interesting story on how he came into the industry that is worth hearing about, but since his time at AES, he's now moved on to become a full-time fire investigator, and this conversation is is just really wide-ranging. We spend a lot of time talking about what to do if your business is implicated in a fire, and you know none of us ever want this situation to come up but it does happen in our industry and i've actually been involved in a couple of situations like this where i've had to go out to job sites alongside of a fire inspector and fortunately in all the cases it hasn't been anything that our company has done but it's important to think about what do we do if we are called into a situation like this? So we spend a lot of time talking about, as a business owner or manager, things that you can do on the front end to protect yourself so that this doesn't ever come up. And then on the back end, if you are invited out to a situation like this What should you do and what should you not do? And towards the end of the conversation, we actually spend some time on sales as well, because even though Jim's a fire inspector, he does have really good knowledge of the sales process from his time at AES. And so we jump into just what are some of the things that the best businesses do that others don't? And I think you're going to find his answers to be really inspiring. Now, before we get going with this conversation, I want to just inform you about something that Grant and I started a little while ago that's called the Firetime Network Power Hour. Now, we are really excited about this, but basically every month we are now getting together on a video live stream. It's live on YouTube, Facebook, and LinkedIn, and we're taking an hour to dive deep on a relevant topic to our industry, but the best part is that you can comment in, you can even share your video with us, and it's incredibly interactive. The first Power Hour that we did was last month, and we talked about how to make time to lead. Right. One of the common denominators that that we find is, you know, you you read these books, you listen to content and, and you take it all in and think, OK, if I could only do these things, you know, I could I could take our company to the next level. What I found personally is that knowledge is amazing, but it's actually not true what G.I. Joe said back in the 1980s, that knowing is half the battle. I don't think so. I think that knowing is a much smaller part of the battle, and it's actually doing that's the majority of the battle. So in our first Power Hour, we actually tackle the topic how to make time to lead. It's so easy to put this on the back burner. And so we just shared authentically about our own lives, what Grant and I do, and, and neither of us are perfect at it, but we just kind of open up a little bit to say, hey, here's some things to think about if you want to be able to set priorities and stick to them. So if you want to take part in more of the FireTime Power Hours coming up, you can go to the website community.thefiretimenetwork.com. That's community.thefiretimenetwork.com. You can click on the events section and see when the next one is coming up. Now, with all that said, I'm going to get out of the way so you can hear this conversation with Jim. I've got a few thoughts that we'll circle back on at the end. Joining me from Spokane, Washington is a fire investigator and fuel burning specialist for QDOT Global Fire Investigation. I'm joined today by Jim Adams. Jim, how you doing?
1: Doing well, Tim. It's really good to be here today. Yeah, I'm, I'd say I'm, I'm really excited to be here, but usually that's your line.
0: So. <laughs> I know. I, I got to think about something different to say, but I'm, I'm always so excited to be here. I'm like, I got to, I got to lead with this. I'm pumped.
1: You know, but- I'll tell you what, it, it, it's, it, it's funny because, you know, when we listen to the podcast a lot, we hear you say that all the time, you know, on the one hand it's kind of like, yeah, he always says that, but on the other side, it really, truly does show your passion that you really are excited about doing this. And it makes us excited to listen and makes me excited to be here as well.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm pumped about this. So Jim, we have met only a few times in person, maybe five or six times, but you've actually interacted quite a bit with Grant Falco because you used to be his sales rep before you started doing what you're doing now. You were with Associated Energy Systems. And just, I got to say this out of the gate, that you took over for a rep that left very big shoes to fill.
1: Very big shoes.
0: And Grant said that, that you... In, in your time there, were one of the best reps that he had ever had. So you you did a really good job with that. But you, I, I guess maybe where we could start here is, could you give your background? So now you're doing you're doing fire investigations. I want to spend some time on that. But you spent a lot of time working in the hearth industry specifically.
1: Sure. So I got started in the hearth industry right out of college. I answered an ad in the newspaper for a chimney sweep company that was looking for anybody who was not afraid of heights. <laughs> that was the ad in the paper, and I had been a rock climbing guide through college as I worked for a kids' adventure camp. And I'm like, you know, yeah, you know, hey, rooftops, you know, cliff tops, you know, what's the difference? And it turned out just it's it sort of like this industry does. It drew me in and put me on a 21-year trajectory on the uh, on, to, to be in the in the hearth industry. So we started, first, we just started, you know, busting our tails, sweeping chimneys. And then we're like, you know, we need some training, got involved with the CSIA, went to chimney school, um, got CSIA certified um, and, uh, and just sort of started, it started a company culture of being hungry for, for information and knowledge that brought us into uh, getting NFI certified. And in the process of all of this. We started realizing that, that if the company is going to grow, you can't just run a brush down a tube all day long. And, you know, and, 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 you know there, there's a place for that. And we did very well. It was, always was the bread and butter of the, of the company. But we started selling product. And one of the local hardware stores had a, uh, you know, was, was a hearth dealer, but they didn't do any installation. So they talked us into, hey, can you guys install for us? So we started doing that. We started selling product. A uh, couple of the regional reps got wind of us and they're like, you guys are selling more product out of your vans than the guys <laughs> with the stores are doing. Did you ever think about getting into retail? So we, we bought a, or we rented a little, a, a little warehouse space and converted the front office into a little showroom. And I think we had two appliances on display and, and, and a desk. That was our showroom. And, uh, and we turned that in, in the nine years that I was with that company, we went from, you know, two guys in a van to running three vans regularly. Um, we were we were turning just under a million dollars annual. And this was in a small community, you know, 15,000 member community. And we were killing it. You know, we were yeah. just having a good time. Um, got involved. We you know got got fire certified as as fireplace inspectors. The uh, the owner ended up getting elected to the uh, you know, as the uh, um, the HPBA affiliate president for the region that we were in, so he did a term of that. And all of a sudden, it just was kind of this wow, you know, a big thing. And trying to constantly trying to learn how do we make our business better, how do we do things better, and you know, it, it, it's pretty funny. You know, we, we talk about, you know, I, I love hearing Grant talk about the, the weekly team meetings and yeah. you know people thinking about doing all that, and I'm like. We were doing that when there's just three of us, you know, it's so like good. three guys. we would sit down and we'd have our, you know, we'd have our strategy. We're all reading, you know, like you know, and and, um, and the owner, he, he'd pass out. Okay. We're all going to read good to great. That was sort of the thing of the yeah, time. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And so here we are, this little, you know, growing chimney sweep slash hearth retailer with, you know, three guys going, We're all going to read good to great. And then we're all going to read, you know, then, you know, something else. So we're all going to read something else. And so we kind of developed this culture of doing things excellently. Um, And, you know, as we did that, and as we gained more, more, more knowledge, more information, more certifications, we got, we ended up with skeletons in our closets that we had to go back and fix. And that's a hard thing when you all of a sudden realize, oh, I've been doing this wrong for so many years and now I want to go back and fix them or change the direction of how I'm doing things. And so, because we didn't have, you know, lots of history, it was, in some ways it was easy for us to make changes and implement things. Um, so anyhow, we grew that. And then through some, some family, you know, crisis issues, I ended up moving. Um, that was in Colorado, moved from Colorado up to Washington, um, not sure if I was going to stay in the industry or not. Got hooked up with a with a retailer who is probably my favorite example of how not to do things. Uh, worked there for just under a year before. The Only time I've ever just like literally packed my stuff up, walked you know, <laughs> walked out because I was I was the store manager and I walked yeah. out. And I'm like I'm not doing this. This is not the way to run a business. Yeah, um, and uh, <laughs> just. You know, left my keys on the counter locked the door and walked out i was like wow. I'm, I'm not doing this anymore you know i i don't like these kinds of practices and uh so then i got picked up by a by a small regional distributor over here um worked there for seven years and i got picked up by aes i was there for almost three so grant kind of uh yeah it, it always humbles me when he says you know how you know that, that, that he starts that he was starting to think of me as as such a great rep, but you know, I was only there for you know two and a half, three years. So that's not a lot of time, really, when you're doing long term relationships. So that, that that humbles me quite a bit from early on because of that culture of knowledge and culture of trying to do want to do things well, I became a codes and standards junkie. And so, you know, and people always be like, wow, how can you carry the stuff around in your head? It's like, because well, I read code books for fun. I guess it's just, you know, <laughs> yeah, I've got copies on my desk. I keep them on my, on my computer. Every time the next edition comes out, I'm going through what's the changes. What are the new things? What do we have to pay attention to? Um, Cause I want to see, you know, the industry do things right. And that's kind of what got me where I'm at now is, I, I was, uh, was asked to consult on a couple of fire cases. And then, uh, you know, started, started chatting and, 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 talking with the investigators. And he's like, well, why don't you, you know, consult with us more often. And pretty soon he's like, well, why don't you just become an investigator? Cause you kind of, you're kind of good at this stuff. And I'd been a volunteer firefighter for years. So it kind of went, went hand in yeah. hand together. So taking these two areas of expertise and putting them together.
0: Yeah. Well, it's awesome. I mean, I I got to know you just towards the tail end of that, just when you were at AES, and and I know that you made a big impression on Grant in those few years. But one thing that I have appreciated, like you said, is that you're you're a codes and standards junkie, and and I'll just tell you, like I'm not, like I I I can go to that world, but it's it's not my strong suit, and it's not it's not where my my gifting is. And in the same way that I'm passionate about you know, a lot of other things like you, you really are gifted in, in understanding that. And as we talked about framing the conversation, one of the things that you wanted to talk about first off is like getting really practical. What, what happens when your business is implicated in a fire investigation? I think that for a lot of folks listening, like if this hasn't happened to your company yet, it probably will. And in the companies I've been a part of from time to time, this has happened and I know that you've got some advice about like what should be some of the first things that we think about and, and do when this happens.
1: Okay, um, I, I'm going to preface my answer with the, the legal disclaimer: I'm not an attorney, and this is not legal advice. Okay, so that that's out there. Sure, you know, take it for what it is. Um, one of the things I, I, I think I, I, I think that in the hearth industry, because and you put this so eloquently well all the time, we're putting fire in people's homes on purpose. We should be keeping that in the forefront, or at least somewhere in our minds, anywhere in the chain, whether you're a support staff in the office, whether you're a sales staff on the floor, whether you're an installer or a service tech, yeah. somewhere in your mind, you always need to remember that I'm putting fire in someone's home on purpose. And that's not a bad thing. It's yeah. otherwise, you know, we wouldn't be in business. It's a good thing. That's right. You know, humanity has grown up. We're, we're the creatures who, who can, who make fire. Um, you know, so much of our, uh, uh, it's built into our DNA to, to live around fire that when we bring it now into our homes, there's long, long, long histories of how do we do that safely with the tools and the knowledge and the information with which we have, Um, You know, if it's build a fire in the middle of the floor of the hut and cut a hole in the top because we can't breathe, to are we installing this with, you know, a UL listed appliance that that is installed according to the way that it's tested with specific clearances and parameters and and all of those things. So I think that's why it's important. Let me put it this way. When it comes to liability as an installer, as a contractor, as a sales person, the best defense always starts with a good offense, always starts with a good offense. You're never going to argue, argue your way out of a sloppy installation or a or or an incorrect application. Um, You know, and and. When I say being a a codes and standards junkie, that's fantastic from from my perspective in the job that I'm doing. But when you're the sales guy on the floor, it's not your job to be the codes and standards junkie, but it is your job to understand what you can and cannot do. Because if you're going to sell a customer something that can't be done, and you're going to try to figure out a way to make it happen, that creates all kinds of problems that then If something happens down the road, you're not going to argue your way out of that. So I'm just going to kind of put that up up at the forefront that the best thing that you can do is don't get in that situation in the first place. And I'm not saying that accidents don't happen and things don't happen, but if you've sold the right product, that's the right application, and you've installed it in the correct way, you've really minimized your your, your chances of having having a problem. You've done the best job that you can do. Up front that's a job that you can walk away from and be be happy to collect the money that you rightfully earned you know yeah. you know there's nothing there's no skeletons in your closet to, to come out and haunt you. so first and foremost you know that's you know do it right the first time have that attitude have that have all that in there. But say something does happen and the phone rings and and it's going to come in one of two forms. You're either going to have your customer call you on the phone yelling and screaming at you saying you burned my house down, or your or a letter is going to drop into the mail that's going to be saying you know you know from such and such a law office you know we believe you you know you are being put on notice. We believe that you have an interest in a fire that occurred at such and such address. Um, and, uh, and then usually at that point, that letter is going to say something along the lines of there's going to be a, you know, an examination of the property is going to take place at such and such a date. In either of those two instances, your response is the same. Um, your response is first off, you know, if it's, if it's your customer, you know, politely s- scrape them off the ceiling as best you can. Um, you, but, you know, be, be polite Don't get defensive. Don't yell and scream back at them. I mean, that's just good customer service to start with, but at that point, you really need to call your insurance company um, and say, you know, Hey, my customer called, Hey, I received this letter. What do I do now? Um, That's what your, your, your business liability insurance, that's what they do um, is when those types of situations arise, it's their job to assemble your team and your team is going to be your your your, your liability adjuster, your claims rep. Um, they're going to bring in legal counsel, and they're going to hire an expert. And that's the job that I fall into is that category. So I say the first thing you know you know don't don't just respond, don't go to the site, don't go out there and try to figure out what happened on your own. Call your insurance company first and foremost. Let them assemble your team, and then they'll have you'll have a chance to to talk with your adjuster. You'll have a chance to talk with um, with the expert that they've selected. And you do have some say um, in that expert selection procedure as well. You can say, you know, hey, do, does the person that you're bringing out here. You know, they're most likely going to be an origin and cause fire investigator. But do they understand hearth products? Do they know this industry? Do they know what they're looking at? Because um, if you get somebody who knows that stuff, and there's a handful of us, uh, you know, there's only... The, to my knowledge is only about two or three at least in this area who are nfi certified uh, myself being one of them and or at least formerly and uh you know and and i'm really the only one up in this region who has the who's a fire certified fireplace and chimney inspector so that's kind of one of those you know you get somebody who knows the product they're going to be able to walk you through you know good or bad and sometimes you know if you made a mistake you just got kind of own it but um you know but that's uh that's the process really and uh and and we can go on if you really want to know what the whole process looks like but that's sort of the first step call your insurance company you know don't go to the site don't get in a shouting match, you know, with your customer. Um, it's never going to end well if you do that. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, even if you turn out on top, you, you really don't want to, you, you don't want to burn bridges. You really, yeah. you really don't.
0: So one thing I'd like to ask you as I'm thinking about this, because there've been a couple times I've, I've been involved in at least the preliminary stages of something like this. And one of our practices was with our installation teams, we're always trying to document everything that we do. So as a fire investigator, have you seen that ever benefit a retailer where they can provide, hey, on this date at this time when we left, this is how it was done? Does that hold water at all in an investigation?
1: Absolutely, it does. Um, because part of the process, so so so, this whole process is is, is called subrogation, and that's when a, you know, a loss has occurred. You know, say, say my house burns down, you know, my insurance company is going to hire an expert, they're going to come out and they're going to look and they're going to try to identify, you know, what and why, you know, what happened, you know, where did the fire start? What caused the fire? And if we come down to and we say, okay, you know, the the, the fire started here at my fireplace. and, And pretty much at that point, if they say, you know, yeah, I just I just had XYZ fireplace company come out six months ago and put this in. Pretty much at that point, the entire process is going to grind to a halt. They're going to get a hold of XYZ Fireplace Company. They're going to contact their insurer, their, you know, their liability insurance, send out a letter of notice, all of that stuff. Um, and then their expert and my expert are going to get together. They're going to go to the scene and they're going to take a look at that. And, and at that point, they're going to come in and they're going to say, a did the fireplace actually cause the fire? And B, why? Um, is it a? Is it a, a? So they're going to have XYZ's um, expert. They're going to have the fireplace manufacturer's expert. Um, the valve, if we think it's the valve, their expert's going to be. There's going to be a whole pile of people, um, and we're going to be looking at all of these different things and kind of narrowing it down. And and as we're doing that. Then we just sort of start sloughing off as, as something becomes, okay, it was, it, you know, if we can look at it and say okay, the valve didn't fail. There's no damage to the valve. Well, then, you know, sit's going to go home or whoever happens to be, you know, then they're now they're off the hook and they're, they're, they're out of it. And so people kind of get whittled out of the process until you sort of have a last man standing kind of thing. And, you know, and then it's, it, it becomes, And then sometimes it becomes very clear cut. Other times it just comes down to, well, we've done everything we can. Now the lawyers will just go behind closed doors and they'll come up with a solution. And we never hear the end of it or never hear how it turns out. From the installer standpoint, and since we're going to kind of stay on that focus, absolutely. Um, I can think of a case over in Idaho a couple of years ago. I believe this was an RSF fireplace. I don't remember for sure, but I think it was. And it was installed in a beautiful log cabin um, and the fire originated in the chase cavity next to the fireplace. So obviously the, the question is going to be where the clearances met, was the installation correct, was something not connected correctly. And in this case, the, the installer took excellent, excellent, excellent in-process pictures from the pre-framing to the framing to the rough end to the venting with, with, with tape measures showing everything and then as they buttoned it up and left it exactly the condition that the fireplace was in well then during the during the post-fire investigation uh the investigators found bunches and bunches of bunches of blown in cellulose insulation packing that that cavity turns out that when when they were when they were uh, insulating the house the insulators decided, oh, this cavity needs to be filled because it's, you know, there's going to be cold air drafts. Didn't consult the general contractor or the fireplace manufacturer. Just cut a hole in the wall, stuck the pipe in, filled the thing up with insulation and left. Well, that's where the fire came from because that's supposed to be a dead airspace cavity between your combustibles and your fireplace. And that cellulose insulation, easy heat transfer. The cellulose does combust, it smolders actually, and Went right from the fireplace, threw the cellulose into the wall and up the chase and there went the house. In that case, it was those pictures is what saved the installer's bacon. Wow. Because uh, up until that point, they were on the hook for a lack of clearances or, or there for something happened until they were able to produce those photographs and be like, okay, yeah, no, you guys did exactly what you should have done. I love those kinds of cases yeah. where I can come in and say, yep, I can see it. I can check it off or if i can look at you know when some alternate trade and that's one of the things that it's so hard when you're an installer to protect your work from alternate trades. Yeah. But you got to do it. You got to do what you can. Yeah.
0: Well, i think that that's a really important story for a lot of companies. You know, they're moving so fast. It's hard to document pictures every single time, but you you never know what's going to happen. I mean, you know, some a fireplace can sit for 10, 20 years before you you see an issue with it and if and when that happens, you know, thank God that you've documented your steps the right way. Uh, I'm thinking about one situation in, in our old company, what we would do on every new construction job, we would spray paint all of our pipe joints together at the seam. So that way we could, we could tell if, if the pipe had been messed with or not. And there was a situation where it was, it was, it wasn't a, a fire, but it was a situation where a final inspection failed due to a mantle clearance. And, uh, you know, I don't know if it was the contractor or the homeowner. Someone called our company and was really furious about it. Mm-hmm. So we went, out, we went out to go check it, and sure enough, it was breaching clearance. And we thought, how did this happen? And you know, at this point, you know, everything the house is all finished, so we can't look at the inside. But what we did is going back to our original pictures, we were able to see the height of the original fireplace, and that what had actually happened is that someone, the framer, the contractor, someone had actually gone in cut the vent pipe, raise the fireplace up because the customer changed their mind and wanted a hearth and they rocked it all up and, and it was the it was the pictures of knowing that when we left, this was the height of the fireplace that that had changed that got us out of it. So whether it's a, a fire investigation or simply just a final inspection on a home, I think documenting your process and, and you got to bake it in. We're on every single job. We always take these 10 pictures. We always take these five pictures, whatever it is, every single job, it always happens so that we're not you know, in a compromised position when we do have to, to give an account of the work that we did. Yeah.
1: And I, and I think those, those kinds of things, you know, starting from doing it right and then moving to make sure that everybody else knows that you did it right. Cause I mean, you can do something right, but again, it sort of comes back to the, if you, if you haven't documented it, if you haven't, you know, kept that in your, in your, in your job file, I'm not saying that you haven't done things well, but you've just opened yourself. You can shut down so many accusations if just with documentation. Yeah,
0: that's so good. Just good
1: documentation.
0: That's so good. We'll get back to our conversation with Jim Adams in just one second. Hey, if you're listening to this and thinking about You know what am I going to do if my business is is implicated in a fire investigation? Or you know how how do I fine tune my showroom, my sales process to make sure that I'm taking advantage of the opportunity that's in front of me? You have to check out. The Fire Time Workshop. So, as Grant and I have been traveling the country for the last couple of years working with businesses, we've found that there are a lot of common denominators in the problems that companies have. What we've done is we have taken this experience of us going out on blitz trips combined with what we have done in our own businesses and created a multi day workshop going through the different steps of running a hearth retailer properly so that you can maximize profit, keep your employees happy, and have a business. Business that becomes a legacy for years to come if you want to make sure you're doing it right and you want to get face-to-face interaction with myself Grant Falco and other firetime network facilitators you have got to come visit us at either our east Coast or west coast workshop to sign up and find out more you can go to it's firetime.com workshop that's it's firetime.com workshop workshop. Hey, by the way, if you're remote and can't make it, we have an online version of this too that you do not want to miss out on. Go to itsfiretime.com slash workshop. Okay, I want to put you on the spot here and ask just one question. So you're a fire investigator. You've also spent a lot of time in the hearth industry. If you could say, what is the number one practice that a fireplace company does that actually does not meet code. <laughs> what would you say? And yeah, you might have a few. I want, I want your top one.
1: Oh, do you want my honest opinion? Yeah. Okay. This you you're, you're gonna you are gonna get a slew of differing <laughs> you know? opinions on this particular topic, um, because it is. I, I think as the industry is as as maturing. The This topic is getting better, but it's not clear yet. And that would be wood-burning inserts into factory-built fireplaces. For years, that is a gray area code-wise because what would happen is, so a, so a factory-built fireplace listed in UL 127 is a very specific test from the log grate to the chimney cap. It is one system. And strictly by by, by the UL label and by code referring back to UL-127, you can't do any alterations to that unit that was not specifically tested for that model, for that manufacturer in a UL-127 test. That includes aftermarket doors, unless they were tested on that unit, it includes aftermarket chimney caps, which by the way, chimney caps actually probably cause more issues with factor bill fireplaces than anything hands down. Just wow. putting that out there. Um, but that also includes gas burning inserts and wood burning inserts. I think we've been managed as an industry to to, to get away with gas burning inserts a little bit better because we're changing the fuel capacity. We actually have, we're, we're running at lower temperatures. Um, You know, there, there, are systems to, to shut the system down in case of, in case of fault. And when we're running aluminum vent pipe, there's kind of one of these, okay, we all, we're already dealing with a little bit more of a controlled animal that we just don't have with wood burning. But what we ended up with is you would have manufacturers who would build an insert, that was designed and tested to go into a masonry fireplace. But then, then whether they, they tested it in, in one particular UL 127 fireplace, and then said, great, it meets this one because UL 127 is fairly uniform. We should be able to put this in any unit that's out there and just sort of said, well, it's blanket listed, mm-hmm. which there's no such term as a blanket listing. It doesn't exist, but they would, they, they would put that out there. well, what ends up happening to, to do it correctly when you have an so So say you have a I'll just throw a heat-a-later Mark 123. It's an sure. old factory built yep. fireplace. There are thousands of them out there. They were put in, in the you know in the 70s and oh, 80s in yeah. condominiums monsters. everywhere and they're falling apart. Yeah. And that's the where you run into these condos where you've got high, you've got lots of common chase units. It's it's not easy to go in and say, Well, I gotta rip all this out and revent it. It's not an easy job, and nobody wants to look at these things and say, Well, I guess we're ripping out every fireplace, all 600 units out of this condo complex and all of the common chases and all the fire blocking and getting into everybody's unit, messing up their walls. Let's just put an insert in it and call it done. Um, And if they want to burn wood, then they're going to, you know, so, so we, we, we boxed ourselves into this and, and to say, okay, well, if I have a, a, so to do it correctly, I would have to have a wood burning insert that's specifically tested for a heat mark 123 that has been tested with the with, with a with, with a chimney liner which this is another one is the UL 1777 for chimney liners are supposed to be insulated according to 1777 unless certain parameters are met and they almost and they're 95% of the time are not met and we do it anyway we don't insulate them but you should have a insulated chimney liner with the correct type of cap that allows the factory built fireplace to breathe, as well as a, as well as a surround that allows it to breathe. Sure. And everything should have been tested together. It never happens. That test doesn't exist anywhere. It's never been done. So that's a that's a hard one. I I, I think those are kind of twofold. You asked me for one, yeah, and I kind of gave you two inserts and. And, and insulated chimney liners. We don't do it. When we need to. Even in a masonry situation, it's got to happen.
0: I thought that you were. I, I thought you were going to go for the insulated liners because I know that that you and Grant <laughs> went around about that, and he he changed his entire installation policy based on that conversation with you.
1: We did too, and that's why I was telling you about The, the company that I worked for in Colorado, we had put in the, the situation that situation I was just describing the the, the insert into the one twenty three. That's our story we you know our our bread and butter was a ski resort that had hundreds of condos built in the 70s and we had put in half of the wood inserts in there And we were like so how do we we ended up going back we ended up going back and either we either we either took the whole system out and put in a freestanding we built an alcove and put in a freestanding stove with a class a chimney or we went back in and did a gas conversion, and that was our, our choice. Was to say doing it into gas was, was was okay, but man, that's that's such a hard choice to say. I've done it this way, and now I'm going to eat some crow and change direction and go this way because now I've had an epiphany. That's yeah. tough.
0: Yeah, it's tough. That's tough. Well, I mean, you mentioned you mentioned Jim Collins earlier when you were talking about Good to Great, and in that book, I feel like one of his. I mean, big points that he makes is you got to face the brutal facts Yeah, and, and facing the brutal facts is never easy and it's always, it's always hard, but the truth is that that's how you get better and that's how you do things right. And you can only get so far cutting corners where I want to shift to for the, the tail end of this conversation, because you've spent a lot of time on the road seeing a lot of dealers. I want to know from someone that who's now you're you're you associate with the industry, but you're not working actively for a retailer or a distributor in the hearth industry. I want to know, like, in general, what did you see the best dealers do that the dealers that weren't as good failed to do?
1: Okay. Um, I, yeah, because I you set me up for this in your email, so I've been thinking about it. And and I'm like, oh man! And I, I, probably the hardest thing in putting together my, my list is not naming names. I'm not because <laughs> uh, I'm like, yeah, I really like to brag on the guys that do it well. I, I guess because because Grant puts himself out there, and he's and it's already public knowledge. I think Grant does the best job of any fireplace showroom that I've seen, um, and that's just and not just because he was my dealer. Um, you know, I think. And it doesn't, and it didn't start with a showroom. Um, yeah, you because know, I, I remember years ago, uh, this is when I was still living in Colorado, and I came up and, and was visiting my parents who lived up here, and they were putting in a, I was helping them put in a freestanding gas uh, stove in their basement. I ran down to Falco's to get the vent pipe, and I remember walking in and it being like pretty much any other showroom that, that, that I knew of. Kind of, kind of cluttered, kind of dark, you know, and, you know, and so. And just for reference, this was, this had to be fifteen years ago, more than that now. And uh, you walk in there now, and it's, it, you feel like you're walking into a place that has purpose. Yeah. And I think when you're looking at at, at, at showrooms, and and you can always tell a showroom that's been put together on purpose. Versus one that's been put together because I unloaded a truck and dumped it in the showroom and just kind of found places for things. Um, so I would say the, the 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 best designs are the ones that draw you in, and everything has a reason for why it's there. Um, I can think of several fire uh, showrooms that are like that, and the ones that have that, that really do well have some type of that kind of an element where they were either there's, there's, you know, there's, there, there there's one over on the West side of the, of, of, Washington that Deb hannig designed. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Deb's another rep, but she also has an incredibly, I mean, she <laughs> yeah. probably yeah. has a secret life as an interior designer uh, because she's got that eye and somebody who has that. And there's, there's a great one over in Western Montana too the same thing or the owner just has, you know, it's like you, you're calling you could have been you know fireplace showroom interior designer There's just it's it's done on purpose with that kind of a, of an intention to detail and an eye for flow and attractivity and attractiveness it just it, it just draws you in and out of all the showrooms that I've seen in lots of showrooms you know 300 plus. I would probably say six would hit that mark. Would hit that list yeah. of showrooms that you walk in and you're just like, "I want to be here. Yeah. I-, I want to be in this space right now." There's other ones. You know, the, the 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 things that don't work is when they're dirty, when they're disorganized, when they're crammed. They're, you either have too much stuff in too small of a space, or you have this gigantic space with nothing in it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Um, <laughs> am I actually in a showroom yeah. or am I, where am I right now?
0: <laughs> That's really good. And I guess one thing I'd like to to maybe end on is, you know, you're a really unique person in that you're a hybrid where you understand like the minute details of codes and standards, but yeah, you're also real relatable and you can talk to people and sell things. And, and I mean, as we talk about a lot in this podcast, very often, the more technically proficient and minded you are, that can actually start to work against you as you talk to people. For, for, for people listening that are like you that, that really do know the nuts and bolts of it, and they like it, it, the details matter to them, and it's important. What have you found is the key to effectively selling?
1: Go out to dinner often. Now, here's why I tell you that I, I think probably the best way to experience um, and to gain understanding of what works and what does not work in a selling situation. Is to, is to go to a restaurant, a lot of different restaurants, and start and start asking yourself, what did I like or not like about the wait staff? How was I treated when I walked in? How was I treated when I sat down? How was I treated when the menu was presented to me? How was I, you know, you know and then after I had my meal, what did the server do? What did the waiter do who came in that, 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 that made me feel important? That, that helped me in my decision-making process and just irritated the daylights out. Of, yeah. you know? And that's, you know, and, 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 and then take that and translate it into how am I treating people on the showroom when they're coming in? Am I trying to, because you can always tell I, I I hate having the special crammed down my throat, which is the same thing as walking into we're overstocked on this insert. Yeah. You We have to sell this insert. You can always tell when you walk in because that's the special you walk in and it's like, you know, and, and or or they don't take the time. I, I love how when you break down your sales process, I, I think the biggest thing is learning how to understand what somebody's problem is. That's the same thing as a good waiter will come in and they 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 they, they ask questions that seek to draw out from you what are you actually in the mood for and what do you want? It's yeah. not just what they're trying to sell you, it's what do you want. And then and, you know, and then probably you know, this is. You know, the, the 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 waiter version of you know just the the how can I help you? Probably my my least favorite. I don't care what the retail establishment auto parts store. I walked in to get my the license plates renewed on my car the other day. And how can I help you? What do you think I'm here for? Yeah. How can right. I help you? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> you know, it's like, um, I guess I'm in the wrong place to get my oil changed. That's next door. I mean, it's kind of like don't don't ask questions that is like, you know. So you're looking for a fireplace? Um, it's kind of why I came in here. You yeah. know, You know, how can I help you? Well, you know, I think better things like what, like, like what brings you in today, or just good morning. Yeah. You know, just yeah. leave it at that. Good morning. Yeah. Welcome.
0: Yeah, it's so good. You know, and I and I love that that at the heart of everything, just like you said, at, at going to a restaurant, it is it it's uncovering the customer's problem, right? You know, when you go to a restaurant, what's the problem that you have? Maybe it's that you want. A really good meal maybe it's that you're feeling really down and so you want to watch the game for an hour and enjoy a beer maybe it's like there's a lot of different reasons that you go into a restaurant and a good a good waiter or waitress is you know they don't need to get into necessarily the ins and outs of your dirty laundry in your life but with a few kind questions it's amazing how they can actually provide you a service that's incredible. And it's amazing how when they do that, you leave a way bigger tip than when someone's just like, like here's my thing that I hate in a restaurant. How are we doing today? Like, I hate it when people say we like that. Like, how are we doing? you know, and you just, and you, and, were
1: you in the car with me? Have you showed up? I don't know. How are we doing? Today? Yeah. And,
0: <laughs> and, and and like when you hear it, it's so funny. We're talking about this, but like, at a, I was at a restaurant the other day where the, the person came up to me, I could tell that it was just very canned what they were saying. They walked to the table right next to us. They said the exact same things and there was no humanity, no personality to it. And I think that, just in the same way with us on the retail floor, it's so funny, we're we're talking about this now, but with us on the retail floor, it's the same thing. I know that we've helped a million customers. I know that we've sold a million gas inserts, but not to this person. Their situation's new. And we have the opportunity to to show dignity and value to that person by taking them really seriously and uncovering their problem. I love that, Jim.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I over over the years, that's kind of been my catch thing. Is, uh, it's sort of been it was like a side hobby of me. I, I always like to go into restaurants and just sort of see what <laughs> you know what, what they're gonna do. You know, least favorite question ever is the, you know, so so how's everything tasting today? It's like, <laughs> I don't know, I haven't asked it. How are so? How are... <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, you know, so we, we, we ask, you know, and I think the same thing when somebody walks into your showroom, you you find it's it's finding that bridge. Between getting too personal because people don't want. I mean, it's not totally. Yep. You know, I'm. You know, I, I want to know enough of your situation to help you solve your problem, without pressing you for. I don't want to. You know, I was like, I, I don't want to know. You know, if you're in, you know, if you're fighting with your kids, or I don't want to. You know, none of that stuff. You know, I, I don't want to get into that. What I want to know is, you know, get to. And, and there's there's a confidence in this too. I think probably the best question a wait, a wait staff can ask that it shows confidence in their kitchen, in their food, but also respectful of uh, uh, of, uh, of you is is there anything else I can get for you today? Yeah, you, know? you know when they brought you your food and they've kind of come back and they do their checkup, that simple question there that it basically says if I've got a problem I'll tell you. You don't need to come in here trying to trying to dig it out. Um, but the same thing applies in your showroom. Somebody, as you're walking through them, asking them, what do you have in mind? You know, you don't have to ask them to just start off. You know, how many square foot do you feet Do you have, are you looking for gas or wood?
0: You know, you need a pellet stove. What, yeah. do, you, what do
1: you have in mind?
0: It's, it's non-threatening.
1: Well, I was kind of wanting something for my game room that would take the chill off on a cold day, but also something that would kind of look nice and make me feel good. Fantastic! You just opened up an entire. You now have a window into in, into into somebody in a simple question, and you haven't even begun to to you know to 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 push anything on them. It's just a little. I just lo- I just love that.
0: What do you have in mind, Jim? It- I. I literally I just wrote that down. I'm gonna start using that. It's so I'm cause I'm I'm always looking for a really good, non-threatening question. And and that's the thing, is like sales is a performance art and 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 we don't want to make people feel dumb or stupid or, or overwhelmed. I love that. Man, so we hit it all. I mean, we hit we hit fire investigation and we ended up all the way at waiters and waitresses and and the sales process. I love it, man. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today.
1: You bet, Tim. My pleasure.
0: Well I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jim Adams. I loved getting the chance to talk to him. And there's a few takeaways that I want to roll right into because I I think it's really powerful. You know, on the front end of that, we when we talked about the idea of How do we prevent being the recipient of the blame when it comes to a fire investigation? And, you know, number one, I I think that Jim is just so dead on that we got to document our steps. I mean, every bit of the way we need to document. And it's easy sometimes to say, hey, yeah, our team takes pictures of jobs most of the time, but. Does it happen all the time? Do we take the same pictures on every single kind of job? What I found from managing teams over the years is that if you don't have like literally a checklist on every single job, what happens is very often team members will take pictures when it's convenient and they'll leave it out when it's not convenient. What we want is a process where pictures are taken every single time of every single situation that we line out. And that way, when when we go to, to grade our installation paperwork and something is missing, we can point it out and say, hey, this picture wasn't taken. We got to go back to that job site and take it. There's never a situation where it's like, oh, you know, I, I didn't get that because I just forgot about it. We document it every step of the way. I think also just the practical advice that Jim shared of like, if, if you're questioning it don't do it, right? If it seems wrong or questionable, do not do it. I'm thinking of a situation that I had. This is going back probably four years where we put in a very expensive fireplace into a very high-end condo. So what happened is we, we got most of the way through the installation, and I found out later on that one of the trade partners may have used a combustible material inside the chase, and the chase required non-combustible materials. And at this point, the stone was already up, and I'm sitting there just thinking, like, my gosh, if we have to rip that stone out, it's going to cost them twenty thousand dollars. And so I was thinking about it. i we had one of these units installed in our showroom floor. And so I was trying to think about like, is this the right thing to do? Is it, is it not? And I ended up putting a piece of similar combustible material in about the same spot as where I thought this piece was turning the fireplace on, taking a, a laser temperature gun and measuring the heat. And the more that I thought about it, I just realized like at, at best, this is totally questionable and at worst it's a fire hazard. So there's just, there's no question we we got to rip this thing open, and it was a really tough situation. The clients were not happy, but we opened it up, and it turned out that there was a piece of combustible material that another trade had used inside of it, and we you know we replaced it with non combustible board and and we patched it back up. It was really hard to make that decision in the moment because you're you're you're, you're justifying all of these things to try and. You know, make it okay. But if you just take a step back and think about it, it's a no brainer. We got to do what's right, and I think that Jim's advice there is very practical. You know, on the on the tail end of this, when it comes to sales, I, I love this 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 answer to the question of, you know, what what's something we can do to grow in our sales? And Jim says, go out to eat more. It's so true, though. Like as as you watch. Other people like serving you at your table, or you you go to fast food, and you know sometimes like I'll I'll notice the difference between someone who works at McDonald's and Chick Fil A. There's always a difference that like when you walk into a Chick Fil A, you just you feel better about yourself. Like people make you feel good. You walk into a McDonald's or a Taco Bell, and you think, oh my gosh, what am I doing with my life? And so much of it comes down to just the way that people make us feel. If you go to a nice restaurant and someone takes really good care of you. That experience, like there's things that we can take away from that for the sales floor. You know, I, I was thinking about this as I was looking at my notes here. That sometimes when I go out to eat somewhere and I observe somebody annoying me or, or doing something that that gets you know under my skin, a lot of the time, if I think about it honestly, I can find myself doing that same thing to people. But it's always easier to see things that we hate about ourselves in others than it is in ourselves so i love that comment about like you know whenever you're out in public watching people interact in a service environment pay attention to it because these are things that translate on the sales floor what is it that makes someone feel at ease what is it that makes someone inclined to listen to your value proposition like right the way that that a master waiter or waitress sets up clients to order it, it's it's very similar to the way that we treat customers and they walk into our showroom and there's a lot to take away there I I think we'll just end on this one of the things that was really important that Jim said is that the best dealers, and unfortunately, you heard them, there's there's not a ton of them, but the best dealers out there, they know why their products are on display in their showroom. They've got a process for it. This is why this product is here. This is the value wedge that it has. And when when somebody comes in with something new, if it doesn't fit the dealer's value proposition for their customer they they're not going to show it. They don't they don't just show things because they're new. They show things because it fits in with their business model. And what's so cool as a sales rep is you can actually help bring this to the table for for dealers of yours that are less intentional with what they offer to be able to come in and say, "Hey, what if we thin the herd right here? What if we what if we made this a little bit more purposeful where these products that are in this location are solving this direct problem for your customer?" That's a huge way to gain credibility as a sales rep and as you can influence a dealer's thought process behind what goes on their floor, I know that you're going to sell more products. So my hope for you is that you got a ton of value out of this conversation. I, I think it was just awesome what Jim brought to the table. Now, if this podcast has been a blessing for you and you want to support it financially, you can do that by going to the website patreon.com slash it's That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash it's fire We do not take your contributions lightly and are just honored to bring you content that helps move the needle in your business now as we go out today what i want you to remember i mean it is tougher than it's ever been we still have rampant supply issues with no end in sight but despite those constraints and despite those hardships you can still make a difference and you can find a way to push forward so remember that the work you are doing matters so go out this week and serve thank you for listening to the fire time podcast